The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 3rd, 2022. Earlier this week, former President Trump came under some fire because he did an interview in which he asked Russian President Vladimir Putin to release any damaging information he has about the Biden family. Trump's recent interview is reminiscent of the 2019 scandal where Trump called Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to ask for information about debunked claims of the Biden family in exchange for military aid. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from October 2019. In the episode, Quinta Jurassic sits down with Alina Polyakova to discuss the Zelensky-Trump phone call, Ukrainian political developments at the time, what exactly Joe Biden did or didn't do in Ukraine, and what it all might have meant for the U.S.-Ukraine relationship going forward. The episode also provides some insight into Ukraine's view of and relationship with Russia just a few years before the country was invaded by Russian forces. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 1st, 2019. The first two years of the Trump presidency were tied up with the Russia scandal. Now there's another scandal involving Russia's next-door neighbor, Ukraine. The revelation that President Trump and his envoys pressured the Ukrainian government for information about debunked claims of Biden family corruption have brought Ukrainian domestic politics onto the American stage. The Ukrainian side of this very American scandal is complicated, yet vital to understanding the whistleblower complaint and the reality of what happened with the Ukrainian Prosecutor General and Joe Biden's son. I sat down with Alina Polyakova, the director of the Project on Global Democracy and Emerging Technology at the Brookings Institution, to break it all down. We discussed recent Ukrainian political developments, what exactly Joe Biden did or didn't do in Ukraine, and what this might mean for the U.S.-Ukraine relationship going forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 457, WTF Ukraine. So, Alina, let's start with the most basic question possible. What is the name of the country that we're about to discuss? Because a lot of Americans have been using the definite article in front of the name. So we're going to be talking about Ukraine, not the Ukraine. It's interesting that we're starting with this because this is actually important. So in 1993, when Ukraine became an independent country outside of the Soviet Union, the government dropped or asked uh, foreign correspondents and other outlets to stop using the because in 
the understanding of when we use a definite article, we're referring to a territory, like you know the Northern Plains, right, or the South, and so refers it implies that there is a piece of land that is currently being occupied or controlled in this context by Russia, used to be controlled, obviously, by the Soviet Union. Ukraine has been a sovereign country for quite some time. And so the correct usage is just Ukraine. And so Ukrainians get very annoyed when people put the in front. (laughs) Yes, it is kind of a cringe factor. Um, If you ever hear a Western policymaker speaking to a group of Ukrainians, you can almost feel you know, the cringe spread across the room if they say the, because it also implies that the person speaking doesn't actually know anything about the country they're talking about. So it's a pretty basic thing to understand that when you're talking about a country, usually you don't use a definite article, especially don't use it in this highly, highly sensitive political uh, context. And the the sensitive political context that you mentioned gets to one of the big pieces that I think Americans sort of need to understand to understand the connection between Ukraine and Russia, right? So just walk me through how Ukraine sees its relationship with Russia and how Russia sees its relationship with Ukraine. Right. So I'll try to do a brief history of the last 20-something years of Ukraine-Russia relations uh, in about two minutes. So basically, uh, Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union. It was the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Republic. Uh, Little known fact is that it was actually uh, in the 1950s that Crimea became part of Ukraine. We say that now, but it was all the same countries, the Soviet Union. So at the time, it didn't really matter if Crimea was part of Ukraine or part of Russia because these were all just part of a much larger country. So when Ukraine becomes independent um, in, in the early 1990s after the fall of the Berlin Wall, dissolution of the Soviet Union, it still has um, a lot of economic relationships, just basic logistical transport relationships to Russia uh, because the entire Soviet infrastructure, the industrial infrastructure, was developed uh, with the notion that all the countries that are part of the Soviet Union made up one single block. So we're talking about gas exports, for example. There's a reason why all of Russia's gas exports go to th- through through Ukraine to on the way to Europe because this was the most direct route. When we talk about um, you know trade in weapon systems, uh, the entire uh, military industrial complex was fully integrated between Russia and Ukraine, and then. Families were fully integrated between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so a lot of Ukrainians have family in Russia and vice versa. Um, so it's been a really kind of painful, it's like cutting a limb off, I think, from the Russian perspective. Uh, when we fast forward a little bit to initially 2004, when we have the first revolution in Ukraine, now we call it the Orange Revolution, uh, where Ukrainians go to the streets to protest a fraudulent election outcome and the Kremlin favorite, this name might sound familiar, Viktor Yanukovych uh, gets kind of basically pushed out because the elections are recognized as being fraud and not free. And Yushchenko, Viktor Yushchenko at the time, prevails um, and becomes president in 04. That's the first revolution in Ukraine. And that is the first sign that this you know previously very tight relationship between Ukraine and Russia uh, was kind of hitting uh, a certain climax. And it wasn't it couldn't really go on as it had been going on. 
Fast forward 10 more years, and we get the second revolution 10 years later, uh, because after the 2004, Yushchenko's government doesn't get done what Ukrainians want it to get done, meaning weeding out corruption, uh, getting rid of the oligarchic system, which is also fully integrated with Russia. The intelligence agencies are fully integrated with Russia um, in a way that doesn't serve Ukraine. And then we come to 2013-2014, and we get yet another set of protests against who? Again, Viktor Yanukovych. Um, he, in the meantime, kind of resurrects himself as a reformer, a, a Western, pro-Western leader, by the way, with the help of Paul Manafort, who helps Yanukovych get reelected in 2010. There's yet another revolution against him that we call now the Euromaidan revolution. The Ukrainians call this the revolution of dignity which is how they prefer uh, for it to be uh, called, in fact, in, in the West as well. Um, and then we get uh, Petro Poroshenko uh, becomes the president of uh, Ukraine following the ousting of Viktor Yanukovych, who's still hiding out in Russia. And fast forward, we have elections in Ukraine now this year, and Poroshenko now loses you know, in a pretty significant way, uh, in a pretty embarrassing way, to somebody named uh, Zelensky, a television comedian, very popular in Russia as well, um, who has a very popular show in which he plays a school teacher who becomes an accidental president. Um, and now, of course, you know, in, in a way of reality, replicating fiction, uh, we have Zelensky, who used to play President TV, become president in real life. And here we are. We have President Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine, a former television actor, uh, comedian, uh, comes out of the blue, huge landslide victory over uh, Petro Poroshenko. Um, and a few months later, we get these interesting phone calls. So let me ask you a little more about Zelensky before we get into the details of this phone call between him and Trump. What is it about him that, that vaults him to this unexpected victory? What is it that he's campaigning on that people find attractive? Well, what's interesting is that he doesn't really campaign on anything. Uh, this may sound familiar to a lot of Americans, uh, meaning that he doesn't really have policy proposals or a vision for Ukraine. He basically creates a new movement called Servant of the People, which is the name of his very popular comedy show. And at that point, meaning this past spring um, in April, which is when the Ukrainian presidential elections happen, uh, you know, Poroshenko's, uh, who was the incumbent at the time, his approval ratings are just dismal. They're single digits, and they've been in the single digits for a long time. Increasingly, that has to do with the fact that Ukrainians are frustrated. They're not seeing enough change. You know, people died on the streets um, in Kiev during the Maidan Revolution, 2013-2014. That didn't happen in 2004. So this was the first time that we actually see you know, Ukrainians dying on the streets. There's a war in Ukraine's east in the Donbass, uh, which Russia has started. Uh, over 13,000 Ukrainians have died in that war. Uh, Crimea is occupied by Russia, right? So the context now is, you know, clearly that Ukraine has closed the door to the east. It's closed the door to Russia, and it's clearly headed towards the west. But to head towards the west, you actually have to have rule of law. Uh, you can't have a corrupt government. Uh, you can't have a kind of close procurement system, for example. Uh, you have to have judicial independence, all these, you know, principles and institutions of a democracy. And Poroshenko uh, doesn't get things done um, at the pace that Ukrainians are satisfied with. Uh, they become increasingly frustrated with the fact that corruption continues to permeate their society. So things like everyday corruption, you know, like you have to bribe uh, the police officer when you get pulled over, you have to 
bribe a developer if you're trying to buy an apartment. I mean, it's, it's every single day. And of course, it's high level corruption at the, at the political level. And so at that point, you know, Zelensky takes hold of an opportunity. People are looking for new blood. They're looking for new faces. They're tired of these old politicians. The only other potential candidate in April uh, during the presidential elections is also kind of an old, familiar face, Emilia Tymoshenko, um, who was already prime minister uh, once in 2004, was then jailed by Yanukovych. But long story, she's been around for a long time. People don't really trust her. Um, and so Zelensky comes out of the blue, but at the same time, I think people are just looking for a new face. They're looking for anything that's not the old regime. And he wins by a huge landslide, over 70%. And it's a huge embarrassment to Poroshenko, but also a beautiful moment for Ukraine. Because this is one of the first, this is the first time where you have a completely peaceful transition of power. Uh, Poroshenko, you have to give it to him, resigns um, in a very diplomatic way. Um, and it happens like a democratic process should happen. And of course, the Russians are looking onto this, some Russians anyways in Russia, where they've had Putin now for almost 20 years. And looking to Ukraine, they can't imagine, uh, you know, Putin relinquishing power voluntarily. They can't imagine that happening in their own country. So again, here we have another wedge that starts to separate uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, basically forever. And you mentioned the... The sort of pull between East and West that Ukraine is is going through, um, and that is something that we've seen for for many many years. Obviously, um, just tell me a little bit more about the way in which Ukraine is sort of trying to decide whether it's throwing in its lot with the West, with the EU and the US, versus Russia, and what sort of factions there are. Well, what's interesting about the situation in Ukraine now is the the pro-Russian faction. I mean, there used to be, you know, communist parties in Ukraine until very, very recently. Um, now in the Ukrainian parliament, there is no communist party. Um, there's still a what was formerly a pro-Russian party associated with Viktor Yanukovych, uh, but they weakened significantly. And so what's happening in Ukraine now is that Basically, there is no more in between for for the Ukrainian people. Ukrainians see themselves as belonging in Europe. Uh, they see themselves as you'll often hear them say, fighting the war for Europe, meaning a literal war against the Russian invasion in Eastern Ukraine. They see themselves as the, as the front lines of Europe. You hear this a lot, um, and they want to have rule of law. They want to have. Uh, societies that are open. Uh, they want to integrate into the EU. Despite everything that's happening in the EU right now, I think the majority of Ukrainians still want this uh, because they see the EU especially as embodying you know, freedom and liberties. Um, and that's where Ukraine is going. And if you go to Ukraine, to Kiev now, um, and if you had been there uh, before 2014, I mean, right now you go there and it feels like it's Berlin or Stockholm. Right. I mean, just the, the, everyone speaks English. It feels very fashionable and hipster. Or it could be Brooklyn or something like that. So you can even feel it in the, in the, in the cultural changes. And so the door to Russia has, is, has been shut. And so the only path forward now is towards the West. Yet, of course, that can't really happen because Russia occupies Crimea and because there's an active, uh, if low-intensity, conflict in Ukraine's east. So with all that as background... Let's dive into the call. So the the first sort of 
moment in this transcript of this now infamous phone call between Donald Trump and President Zelensky is this point where Trump says, I will say we do a lot for Ukraine. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of time. And then he goes on to say, you know, that the European Union isn't doing enough. The United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. I wouldn't say it's reciprocal necessarily because things are happening that are not good. But the United States has been very good to Ukraine. So what is he talking about there? So there, President Trump is not wrong. So after Russia invades Crimea in 2014 and takes over and then starts the war on the Donbass, the entire international community, this was during the Obama administration still, comes together and tries to implement a common strategy to deterring continued Russian aggression and to help Ukraine defend itself against Russian military aggression. The EU typically does not provide military support and aid, uh, but they step in uh, eventually with significant packages for democracy development, you know, various forms of on-the-ground aid to civil society organizations, independent media. They provide some technical assistance. Um, I believe that over the, the course of the last five years, since 2014, the sum of European support for Ukraine is about $15 billion. It's a significant amount of money. The United States, however, thanks to the U.S. Congress, uh, which almost unanimously uh, passes legislation for standing together with Ukraine, now on a yearly basis uh, authorizes and appropriates $250 million tagged specifically for military support. This goes to training Ukrainian troops. It goes to providing defensive and also lethal weapons now as well. Uh, so the United States is fully committed from a financial perspective, to helping Ukraine's military uh, develop so that they're able to defend themselves against continuing Russian incursion into their territory. So the president is not wrong when he says that. And so Zelensky follows up to this and he says, you know, I, I spoke with Angela Merkel, with Emmanuel Macron, so the leaders of Germany and France. I told them they're not doing quite as much as they need to be doing on the issues with the sanctions. It turns out that even logically, the European Union should be our biggest partner, but technically the United States is a much bigger partner. So is there a grievance here on Ukraine's side in terms of how much the European Union is doing, or is Zelensky just kind of hamming it up for Trump? I think we have to read Zelensky's comments in the context uh, when this call took place. Um, I will say that perhaps it wasn't the smartest thing to disparage European allies uh, who have been very engaged and have been providing significant amounts of financial and diplomatic support to Ukraine. But uh, Zelensky at this point is an inexperienced diplomat. Um, that goes without saying. He has no diplomatic experience, no government experience before getting elected. He's freshly inaugurated. It's the weird thing about the Ukrainian system that there's a, lo a long amount of time that passes between election and inauguration. He just establishes his cabinet um, after this call takes place at the end of July. So he knows that he his main objective on this call is to win over the personal support of the president um, so that he can hopefully over time continue to have support from the United States. Um, and so I think his objective here is to do what I think a lot of world leaders probably do in these phone calls that we just don't know about, uh, which is praise President Trump, agree with President Trump, you know, tell him that he's the best. Tell him that America is the greatest. Tell him that you're so thankful for everything. That's exactly what he does. He probably shouldn't have disparaged Germany and France, 
But I think in this context, when we're talking to the U.S. president, a country that is absolutely instrumental in helping your country not be taken over by Russia, and you know that your aid, your military aid that you've been getting from the United States has somehow been delayed at this point, but you don't know why, you're in a pretty precarious position uh, where obviously the United States and specifically President Trump has a huge amount of leverage. And your only objective in this call is to win him over. And I think that's exactly what he's trying to do in those comments. So he's he's really sort of between a rock and a hard place here. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe he could have handled that differently. But I think we have to understand that exactly in, in those terms. So Zelensky, after sort of criticizing Germany and France and the European Union, goes on to say, we're ready to continue to cooperate for next steps. Specifically, we're almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. What is he talking about there? And um, you also mentioned this issue of these big aid packages from the United States. How do those connect with this? So the javelins are uh, an interesting comment because it is actually the Trump administration that allows uh, the sale of offensive lethal weapons, in that jargon, to be sold to Ukraine. The Obama administration allowed defensive systems, but not offensive lethal systems. So the the White House approves as President Trump signs off on basically allowing weapon sales, uh, lethal offensive weapons sales, including these javelins um, that are used in anti-tank warfare to be sold to the Ukrainians. And I think what Zelensky is trying to say there is, you know, look, Mr. President, uh, President Trump, uh, we can be a market for you. Uh, we're ready to buy more American-made military weapons. Uh, We are ready to be a partner for you. Uh, We're ready to be a customer for the U.S. military industrial complex. Uh, We're ready to buy more. I think that's exactly what he's doing in that comment. And then on top of the javelins, there's also this big aid package from the Defense Department and the State Department. It's actually, I think there's been some indication in the whistleblower complaint that Zelensky may not have known it was being held up by the president when this call took place. But... If you could just tell me, what is that aid package and how important is it to Ukraine and what does it have to do with President Trump? So as we were talking earlier, the United States has been uh, providing $250 million a year specifically for military aid, which goes to training of Ukrainian troops, uh, other ways of helping the Ukrainian army uh, defend itself against against the Russians. Uh, so that's one piece of the aid package. And that is part of law. It is included in the National Defense Authorization Act on a yearly basis that the president has already signed. Um, so the president doesn't really seem to have a mandate to say they're going to freeze the sake is congressionally appropriated. There's a whole other aid package that the U.S. distributes through all kinds of different agencies like USAID, the U.S. State Department. The United States also contributes to international organizations like the IMF and the OECD that then give aid to Ukraine uh, for various uh, civil society domestic programs, anything ranging from healthcare to you know, supporting journalists to helping them figure out how to do land reforms. It's a whole slew of stuff. And it's hard to estimate that, but we've seen some estimates that that was approximately $140 million in additional aid. And so we get into a situation where about 
400 million of basically direct aid, both military and non-military, is at stake here. So going back into the transcript of the call, Trump then responds to Zelensky and says, I would like you to do us a favor, though. And he goes on to say in this super vague and confusing language, I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike. I guess you have one of your wealthy people. The server, they say Ukraine has it. And he goes on to basically say he wants to have uh, Attorney General Bill Barr contact Zelensky so Zelensky can get to the bottom of it. What on earth is he talking about here? It's a great question. So what's fascinating about this call is that there's all of these references that the U.S. president just kind of pulls out of his pocket that are really vague. And so I'm so glad we're doing this annotated spoken, the spoken annotation of this call. So the crowd CrowdStrike reference is a reference to an American company named CrowdStrike that uh, first uh, discovered the Russian hack in the lead up to 2016 elections against the DNC servers and the Hillary Clinton campaign and identify the specific Russian actors, APT 2829, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, as they're sometimes known. Um, and so I think what the president is referring to there is this conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy theory that somehow you know, this was all some sort of ploy and this was fake and that, in fact, um, some information pertaining to the servers on which uh, Hillary Clinton um, had some of her emails and those missing emails that Trump really wanted Russia to find in 2016, that that is all in Ukraine. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And is there any evidence for this? Not that I'm aware of. So Zelensky kind of doesn't really take Trump up on that, which may not be particularly surprising, given that there's not really any evidence for it. But he goes on to kind of say, you know, it's very important for us to cooperate with the United States. And then he mentions Rudy Giuliani. And he says, I'll personally tell you, one of my assistants spoke with Mr. Giuliani recently, and we're hoping that he'll be able to travel to Ukraine and we'll meet him. So this, of course, is the president's personal lawyer. And Trump goes on to say, I would love for you to talk to Giuliani along with Attorney General Bill Barr. What is Giuliani doing in Ukraine? So... Giuliani, of course, has been the focus of a lot of reporting over the last few weeks. Uh, but let's, you know, rewind a little bit in our timeline. So we know that somewhere at the beginning of this year, beginning in 2019, uh, Giuliani starts to run a sort of shadow diplomacy effort uh, with the Ukrainians. And here's what we know. So in January 2019, what's happening in Ukraine? We still have 
the former incumbent Petro Poroshenko in power, but he's getting to single-digit approval ratings already. His uh, prosecutor general is somebody by the name of Lutsenko. So remember those names. Lutsenko is the prosecutor general at the time. Poroshenko is in power. And we know from recent reporting as well uh, that Giuliani also seemed to have had some communication, some relationship with a previous prosecutor general named Shokin. So Shokin is a guy who was known to be an incredibly corrupt figure who was actually stopping a lot of corruption investigations in Ukraine. And he eventually gets fired under a huge amount of political pressure, months of political pressure from the international community, including the European Union, including the United States, and yes, including Vice President Joe Biden, because we're in 2016. So Shokin finally gets dismissed in 2016, including by pressure from the United States and the Obama administration and Joe Biden. And he is eventually replaced by Lutsenko. And Lutsenko sticks it out for almost uh, three years in the Poroshenko administration. So, okay, so 2019, we have Lutsenko and we have Poroshenko. And we know that at this time, Giuliani starts to reach out to Lutsenko. And they eventually meet in New York in January of 2019. Uh, and they have several follow-up meetings after that. And then we get this uh, really bizarre outcome in March. This seems to come, seems to come directly out of those meetings, uh, which is Lutsenko gives this strange video interview to The Hill, a publication in, in D.C. that's been covered now quite extensively, in which he says two kind of strange things. One, he insinuates or alludes to the idea that he will, as the prosecutor general at the time, reopen an investigation into some dirty dealings by some Ukrainian officials having to do with Ukraine's interference in 2016 elections. Okay, that, he says that thing. Then he says one other weird thing, which is he makes claims that the U.S. ambassador at the time, uh, Marie Ivanovich, is in private saying disparaging things about the Trump administration and accuses her of other uh, inappropriate, you could say, behavior that she's been carrying out. So what's interesting about that specific interview that Lutsenko gives is that it seems to have emerged from a variety of different interests. It's really a confluence of interests between what's happening in Ukraine at the time and what Giuliani seems to want. So we know a lot about what Giuliani wanted because of independent reporting that's happened since then. Uh, we know that he was trying to get to the quote-unquote, bottom of this idea that Ukraine somehow interfered in 2016 elections on behalf of Hillary Clinton, that there's some sort of narrative around Ukraine's collusion with Democrats, right? And we've seen this reflect in the president's tweets. However, there's also a Ukraine component here. So the question that we haven't been reporting on a lot is, you know, why does Lutsenko do this? And why does he do this in March? You know, what really gets to him, right? And so what's happened in Ukraine in March of this year is Poroshenko looks like he's going to lose the elections that are coming up in April. And Lutsenko is really scared that he's going to lose his job because he probably will because he's a political appointee of the Poroshenko administration. And so he seems to be scrambling and very nervous to keep his position. At the same time, the U.S. ambassador 
at the time, Marie Ivanovich, is increasingly being very critical of Lutsenko and the Poroshenko administration for stalling reforms, for not investigating corruption cases, uh, for blocking the appropriate investigative authorities uh, of other agencies that were set out specifically to investigate high-level corruption, um, and for basically undermining the entire judicial process, stacking the courts, etc. There's a lot of bad things that are happening in judicial independence at the time. And it looks really bad for Lutsenko and Poroshenko. So think about it. You're an incumbent. You are running what increasingly looks like a losing campaign. You're nervous. And on top of that, you have one of your most important partners, the United States, and the U.S. ambassador, who's in Kiev, you know, increasingly saying these public things, you know, kind of hitting you over the head with this corruption hammer, right? You guys aren't doing enough. You need to be doing more. And they're really nervous. And they see... I think the U.S. ambassador as a huge problem for them politically. So there's a lot to unpack there. So let's let's start with the Victor Shokin aspect of the story and then sort of move forward in time. So Shokin has uh, been a kind of shadowy figure in this story. He he sort of starts a lot of the movement, but it's not really clear what's going on with him. So just tell me, why is it that he is dismissed? Why is it that there's so much pressure on Ukraine from both the European Union and the United States to get rid of him? Well, it's a pretty straightforward answer. Um, shocking at the time, and there's a huge amount of reporting on this, um, this was spring of 2016, basically stops uh, his office from carrying out corruption investigations. Um, and there's a lot of local reporting in Ukraine that he is, in fact, aiding and abetting uh, corruption at a high level. Uh, he is someone that is known to be one of these you know, players in Ukraine for a long time. Um, there's a huge amount of disapproval of some of his actions. And basically, the entire reform process gets stalled in Ukraine because of him. And at one point, uh, some of the aid agencies, international aid agencies, even threatened to hold international aid, which Ukraine depends on, unless he's dismissed. It gets this bad, basically. And it takes a long time for Poroshenko to, to make that call. Uh, eventually, the Ukrainian parliament forces him to resign. But it was celebrated as a great thing. This was a great move uh, that shows the Ukrainian government will dismiss corrupt officials. So Trump and Giuliani have both alleged that Shokin was dismissed because he was looking into this company, this Ukrainian gas company called Burisma, that Hunter Biden was on the board of and that Joe Biden somehow uh, pulled strings to push Shokin out because he was trying to shield Hunter Biden from scrutiny. So what is Burisma and what is Hunter Biden's involvement in it? So Burisma is a private Ukrainian gas company um, that is owned by a man by the name of Zlachevsky, who is a former uh, minister of the ecology in Ukraine. And there have been some questions as to whether he used his political position when he was part of the government to basically allow his company uh, privilege access to licenses. So there is there has been a lot of questions whether there was uh, a corrupt uh, element to the acquiring those licenses by Burisma because the owners, Lachevsky, had a government post at the time that obviously put in a privileged position to disperse those licenses. So there, there was an investigation. That investigation was closed. 
And there was even a lawsuit, I believe, that was closed in 2017 in a British court against Burisma as well that was also closed without any uh, conclusion for a lack of evidence. So this case has pretty much been dead. Uh, Shokin not only didn't want to reopen the case, he was actively trying to let it die, right? So he could have potentially reopened the case. But he had no interest in doing so because Shoki had no interest in investigating corruption because everything in Ukraine when it comes to these high-level corrupt business practices are entangled. So meaning that if you investigate one oligarch, like somebody like Zlachevsky, you inevitably touch someone else and then inevitably might touch you or people that are close to you. Um, and you, of course, don't want to do that. So Shokin was, in fact, not opening an investigation. There was no active investigation to Burisma. And in fact, he was letting it just sort of linger and sit. And there was no desire and no interest on his part in opening this investigation at all. So in fact, Vice President Biden, in being part of a broad international effort to get Shokin dismissed, one could say was acting directly against his son's potential financial interest as a member of Burisma's board, because the idea was we want Shokin out because he's not pursuing corruption cases, of which this case could have been won, the Burisma case could have been won. And we want an honest prosecutor in there who's going to actually pursue these cases and potentially reopen ones that weren't properly investigated. So in fact, Joe Biden was advocating at the time for a more honest replacement to Shokin, who would have actually potentially been a detriment to his own son's uh, board membership in Burisma. So Joe Biden was acting against, you could say, Hunter Biden's interests in that moment. So after Shokin is dismissed, the new prosecutor general, uh, Lutsenko, comes in. So does he take any action regarding Burisma or the Bidens? No, unfortunately, uh, after Shokin is dismissed, the person that replaces him, Lutsenko, is not much better than Shokin himself. You could just say that he's a bit more politically savvy, so he manages to stick it out for a longer period of time. But he's also not interested in pursuing corruption cases. Um, he also lets things linger. He tries to undermine the authority of the anti-corruption investigator, which is an independent agency. He tries to undermine the uh, ability of something called the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, which is tasked with investigating high levels of corruption as well, and then recommending cases for, pros for continued prosecution by the uh, general prosecutor's office. Uh, he tries to undermine their authorities and capabilities as well. So Lutsenko basically acts in a more savvy way, uh, very similar to Shokin. Um, he is just as corrupt. Um, he's not interested in touching any of these oligarchic uh, networks and relationships. Uh, he just seems to be much more interested in saving his own skin for the long term. When Lutsenko speaks to the Hill, one of the things he says is that the U.S. Ambassador Marie Ivanovich has given him this list of people not to prosecute. The implication is kind of that this is the ambassador trying to shield people from political scrutiny. He later then walks that back and says that she didn't actually give that to him. And in fact, he asked for that from her. But walk me through the interactions between Lutsenko and the ambassador here. He's trying to present himself there as he's sort of the honest dealer and she's the corrupt dealer. But what is that relationship actually like? 
It's really hard to know. But what we do know is that the U.S. ambassador, uh, Marie Ivanovich at the time, you know, she is doing her job, right? The United States is not in the business of giving giving any financial aid to countries where it's going to be misspent because of corruption and skimming off the top and things like that. Um, the judiciary and specifically the office of the prosecutor general becomes kind of a hot issue in Ukraine for years. It has been a hot issue for years because this is the office that's supposed to be pursuing these cases and they are not. And at the time, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, there are um, also other uh, legal things that happen in Ukraine uh, that don't look good for Ukraine's fight with corruption. You know, and Marie Ivanovich, the U.S. ambassador, uh, goes on the record and makes a gives a public speech on March 5th, which is just about two weeks before Lutsenko publishes this interview with The Hill, where she publicly admonishes uh, Ukraine's record on corruption and publicly talks about the inadequacy of the rule of law and the inability of the prosecutor general to pursue these cases. So at the time, there's a lot of you know, kind of convoluted behavior here. You know, I don't know how many times Lysenko met with the ambassador, if he met with her at all, if they had conversations. We know the U.S. Embassy sends a formal letter uh, to the prosecutor general, which is included in that Hill interview. He uh, Lysenko publishes it, uh, where uh, they talk about why uh, you know certain aid that it seems like Lysenko wanted for himself um, cannot go to him. And so it's pretty convoluted. Uh, but I think the big point and takeaway without getting too into the weeds of this um, is that Lutsenko seems to see the U.S. ambassador as sort of blocking his ability to maintain his own position and potentially having a negative effect on the re-election chances of Petro Poroshenko, who appointed Lutsenko in the first place. And so I think for a long time, uh, Lutsenko has, and Poroshenko to a certain extent, have been trying to get rid of this ambassador uh, because they don't like that she's sort of speaking tr- the truth and uh, criticizing them about their record on corruption and reforms. And what ends up happening to Yovanovitch? So th- there is a bit of a missing link here. What we know is after this Hill interview is published, it quickly gets picked up by Sean Hannity. Then it gets tweeted by Don Jr. Then it gets tweeted by the president. So there's a huge sort of media storm um, that emerges out of this you know, relatively unknown publication called The Hill. I mean, it's maybe known to some folks in D.C., but it's not a national, nationally known outlet. But it gets spun up uh, by all of these other media actors who are in the Trump orbit. And then the ambassador a few months later is dismissed. And so she leaves her post in May. Um, She was supposed to stay through the end of the year and was going to retire, in fact, as far as we know. Uh, And she's just pushed out very, very quickly after that. Uh, And the missing link here is we don't actually know. And so between March and May when she leaves, you know, who made that call? We assume it was the Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo. But we don't really know what happened in those two months that led to her dismissal. So after Trump tells Zelensky that he wants him to look into uh, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, Zelensky's response is maybe not what one would want it to be. He responds saying, uh, we've won the majority in parliament, so the next prosecutor general will be 100% my person. He or she will look into this situation, specifically to the company you mentioned. Presumably he's talking about Burisma there. 
How does that read to you? Is that Zelensky sort of trying to get Trump off his back? Is he really making a promise that he's going to lean on the new prosecutor general to look into the issue? What is he doing there? Well, what's fascinating before I answer that question is that Lutsenko um, does end up you know, being pushed out after uh, Poroshenko loses the election. And Zelensky in July, on July 25, which is when the call with Trump happens, uh, doesn't yet have his cabinet approved. Um, that happens just basically a month later. And so I think what Zelensky is trying to tell Trump is just to assuage him and say, look, you know, I don't have my guy there yet. But when I have my guy in that position, yes, Mr. President, we will look into this. What's amazing is that Lutsenko himself, um, after he no longer holds the job of prosecutor general, uh, in May gives an interview to Bloomberg where he says, oh, no, there was no investigation. And in fact, uh, there was no wrongdoing found by Hunter Biden or Joe Biden, any of the Bidens. No violations of the law. So basically, it sounds like Lutsenko had also promised to open an investigation to appease what Giuliani wanted from him probably in all those meetings and what Trump is now referring to in this phone call with Zelensky, but doesn't actually do anything. He just says it. Yes, I'll reopen the investigation. You know, Help me give her this ambassador. I'll reopen the investigation. And it sounds like Zelensky is just you know, appeasing Trump. Again, maybe he shouldn't have said that because it doesn't look good. But it sounds like he's just appeasing Trump and saying, look, Mr. President, I'll, I'll try to be helpful here once I have my own guy there. So just to recap, at this point, what's happened in this conversation is that they're having a congratulatory phone call. Zelensky asks for more weapons to fight this war with Russia in the East. President Trump immediately says, I'd like you to do us a favor. I want you to investigate this CrowdStrike conspiracy theory. I want you to investigate the Bidens. And then Zelensky kind of says, yes, yes, we'll look into it. From the Ukrainian perspective, from Zelensky's perspective, is this a shakedown on Trump's part? It's really hard to know because, one, this is not an actual transcript of the call. These are the note takers notes. So, one, we don't know if this is verbatim or to what extent it is. We also don't know if there are parts that were not included in notes, which would not be atypical. Often, note takers don't include every single element of the conversation. So it's really hard to say kind of what the feel of the actual phone call was. Of course, reading these notes, um, I think if I was Zelensky, I, I would just be stunned and shocked and not know what to say. Right. When you have the U.S. president basically asking you to do something, and again, in the context of the huge leverage the United States has over Ukraine, of the fact this is a new president who doesn't really know what he's doing yet, meaning Zelensky, um, who doesn't have his uh, cabinet appointed yet, who's in a pretty weak position still, relatively speaking. He's certainly in a weak position vis-a-vis the U.S. president. Um, I mean, I think the more um, positive reading of that comment is that Zelensky will just say anything that Trump wants him to say in this conversation, right? Um, Does he experience it as a shakedown? It's hard to know. Of course, then in the press conference that Zelensky and Trump give together around the UN General Assembly in New York, uh, Zelensky very clearly says, I wasn't pressured, there was no pressure. Uh, But if you look at his face during that entire press conference, he looks absolutely terrified, 
right? Is the face of someone who's just wants to say, just this is normal, this is normal, just pretend everything is normal. And it's not, <laughs> right? Um, so it's hard to know. I think the, the more uh, positive reading of this, of Zelensky's behavior, um, is that he is completely stunned and lost and confused and has been given the advice to just agree with everything Trump says and try to flatter him. Which he does later down in the call. He sort of says that he's, you know, he he mentions he stayed in Trump Tower the last time he was in New York, which we can talk another time about uh, the constitutional dimensions of that and whether it's a violation of the Emoluments Clause. But it does seem like a pretty transparent attempt to flatter Trump. So so going back to the press conference that you mentioned, um, another thing Zelensky says there that's interesting is he makes this comment essentially along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, I, I want to stay out of this. I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to interfere in a U.S. election. So from his perspective, is this something that he's just trying to kind of fade into the background of and he doesn't want anything to do with? Zelensky's strategy seems to have been exactly that. Uh, we want to stay out of U.S. domestic politics. We don't have anything to do with this. There was an incident back in May when Giuliani said that he had a trip planned to meet with the new president-elect, President Zelensky at the time and his team, and then he canceled that trip last minute. Our understanding is that the Zelensky team didn't respond in a positive way to Giuliani's visit at the time, which was a smart thing to do. You know, so I think from the Ukrainian perspective, it's like, just we just want to mind our own business. You know, we have a war to fight. We have a lot of things we need to get done. Um, and we need U.S. support. So that's his objective. That's Zelensky's objective. And to the extent to which he can stay out as far as he possibly can from all the fires burning in the United States, I think is the smart thing to do. So how is this being reported on within Ukraine? How is it playing within Ukraine? We've obviously it's been tearing up the U.S. media, but I have much less of a sense of what the read within the country is. What's interesting is that it hasn't really been getting a lot of coverage in Ukrainian media, uh, meaning what's happening in the U.S. and this phone call um, and the kind of uh, hoopla it's caused here. I mean, it's led to an impeachment inquiry by the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives. But Ukrainian journalists really haven't been covering this. And I think on the one hand, it's just confusion as to what is going on. I think people are lost. They don't know how to cover it. Um, they don't know what it means. I think they're um, underestimating the potential repercussions of what this means potentially for Ukraine down the line. There's a question of whether the Zelensky team and Zelensky himself understands what this could mean for Ukraine down the line in terms of U.S. policy and continued U.S. support. I think that's the much bigger question here to me. So what's interesting is that the Ukrainian media, I mean, this has not been the front pages of every single Ukrainian paper, is getting some reporting, but certainly not to the extent to which it's being covered in the United States. And when you say there's a underestimation of what the repercussions might be, what do you mean by that? So if we rewind a little bit to 2016, when President Trump was still running for office, obviously the big fear then, given everything he was saying about, you know, wanting to be better friends of Russia and loving Putin, all these kinds of things, uh, made those of us working on Ukraine and Russia really nervous because it seemed like what Trump really wanted 
was some sort of grand bargain with the Kremlin. And of course, the first victim of that uh, would be Ukraine, uh, meaning that for the Kremlin, Ukraine remains critically important from the perspective of national identity, uh, from the perspective of strategic objectives, uh, where Ukraine is placed just geographically. So Ukraine really, really matters a lot to Russia. And the concern was, because the U.S. has been supporting Ukraine militarily, it has been the major supporter of Ukraine's continued military ability to defend against Russian incursions, that Trump, who doesn't really care about Ukraine, is going to do some sort of handshake and get some sort of deal with Putin and throw Ukraine on the bus, meaning cut off support and aid, uh, meaning cut off diplomatic support to Ukraine as well. And so now we fast forward to, you know, three years later in 2019, and we're in a situation where suddenly support for Ukraine, U.S. support for Ukraine is being frozen, is being held. So you have people close to the U.S. president led by Giuliani, uh, weaving these conspiracy ch- theories, trying to connect dots that aren't connected. One dot being Hunter Biden and Burisma. That's one data point that somehow ties Ukraine to the Democrats. And the other point being, of course, that Paul Manafort, who is now in jail, is in jail because of a lot of evidence that was uncovered about his activities in Ukraine. So that's another data point. These are not connected to each other, and they don't fit into a broader narrative of Ukraine Democrats collusion. But that's, of course, what's being spun by people close to the president. And so now that fear that Ukraine was going to be a victim of some sort of grand bargain of some kind is once again real. And it feels much more real because of what we've seen in this temporary aid freeze, uh, because what we're seeing now in terms of rhetoric and uh, this political narrative that Giuliani is weaving and the president is supporting. And so I think the broader repercussions here that I hope Ukrainians are thinking about, and I hope everyone is thinking about, is whether this political spin and these conspiracy theories about Ukraine's involvement in 2016 and some collusion with the Democratic Party in all these various ways, uh, will undermine support for Ukraine by the Republican Party. And what's interesting is that prior to 2016, the Republican Party have been hawks on Russia. As a result, they've been supporters of Ukraine. And since 2016, the Democrats have become hawks at Russia, very supportive of Ukraine. But we've had bipartisan support for Ukraine um, since Russian invasion of Crimea. And my concern is that because of the political spin now that is completely unfounded, that we're going to have some sort of wavering of that general support of that consensus that Ukraine does matter for U.S. national security interests. So Ukraine sort of risks becoming a casualty, essentially, in this spin effort by the White House. That is the fear and the anxiety that many of us are living with, yes. So on that cheerful note, let's end it there. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Quinta. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Alina Polyakova. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. You can purchase Lawfare t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Paya Howell. Your audio engineer was Jacob Schulz. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.